I'm going to begin the show today with a very personal story. I'm not looking for your pity or your applause or how much my life has changed, but to simply give you context why my guest today matters to me. See, I never grew up knowing whether the rug was going to be pulled out from underneath me. My dad suffered with a mental health condition. He was bipolar and he self-medicated with alcohol. He was a binge drinker and verbally abusive during the part of the year where he would squander vast sums of money we didn't have. And then the other part of the year, he was stone sober and he was one of the kindest and most charismatic humans. But I remember as a young child sitting at my kitchen table, my dad had brought home a four slice toaster. What a luxury. And inside it, two cherry pop tarts were getting toasted. Again, another luxury. Well, a man walked into the kitchen unannounced, unplugged the toaster, and threw the check that my dad had bounced on the counter and walked out the door. So I guess much of my hustle and fear that all I have will be taken away comes from my childhood. On the other side, I had a rock for a mother. Five foot as she was standing on her toes, but pound for pound, I have yet to meet anyone with more resilience or dedication or love for her family. She went to work every day, she sewed her clothes, she kept a roof over her head and food on the table. And somehow, in the middle of all of this, she tried to invent board games so that she'd get a big break and take us out of our current circumstances. She wasn't long for this world and left us in her early 50s, and I'm convinced she died of exhaustion. So she's the first woman that comes to mind when we talk about International Women's Day. I wouldn't be here without her, and I don't just mean via her birth canal. She never stopped believing in us, so Mom, on this special day, please know how much you meant to my three sisters and me. And today I have another story about a woman, a mother, who did what she could to keep a roof over her children's head and food on her table. Her name is Lori Nickel. Today we acknowledge all the incredible contributions that women and girls have made, that have inspired us, that have mentored us. Women, we are amazing. We are doing amazing things and I am proud every day to be a woman. And she found the will to change her life, her world, and as you will soon learn, to change our world for the better. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Lori Nickel, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much, Tony. I'm so happy to be here. When I met you last fall, it was an event for the Table de Chef. I was hosting it. You were at the head table. and We ended up sitting together. Little did I know I was sitting beside someone who's been acknowledged as one of Canada's top leaders, being awarded an Order of Ontario, and literally an armful of incredible accolades. And when I heard what you did, building Second Harvest into the largest food rescue agency in Canada and helping millions of Canadians deal with food insecurity... I said, you must come on my show. And I'm glad you said yes. I'm glad I said yes. We're going to spend time discussing food insecurity and waste and all that your organization does to help with the food insecurity that's happening in Canada. But first, if I can, I want to talk about you. When I did research on you, I felt so much pain for the life you lived as a child. You grew up the youngest of four children, 
but it wasn't a happy life. I feel confident even saying it was horrific. Is that fair? There are moments of happiness, but it, yeah, there was some trauma for sure. So tell us about the trauma, because I always believe that what happens to us early in life very often defines our entire life. Life is many different things. And I think that we're all very lucky. So even in the pain, there is some joy. Uh, I did grow up the youngest of four children, and that's kind of why I laugh a lot, because you always have to be the clown. Um, there was a lot of abuse in my family. There was psychological abuse. There was physical abuse. There was sexual abuse by a close family member. Um, it was a lot of horrificness. There was also a lot of laughter, right? Like, the truth is, you don't really know how bad your situation is, because it's just your situation. You just think a lot of these things are quite normal because that's what you know. Um, but it did become very, very difficult. And, um, you know, the rest of our lives were, you know, we still are dealing with the trauma of that, the PTSD of that. And I moved out when I was 15 to get a, away from it. But I, I do have like really lovely sisters that I am very close to and we laugh a lot. But I want to ask just before we talk about you moving away at 15, because there's a lot of people dealing with trauma out there. What did you do to cope? You know, I was the youngest, so I, uh, I, I'm the jokester, right? Like I'm always trying to make people laugh and, and that's how I managed it. And, you know, I'm on my best behavior when I can be or, you know, ducked out of the way and hid a lot. There was a lot of hiding. That's a fact. Um, and staying out, but it was also a different time. It was the seventies and, you know, we were encouraged to stay outside until the lights came on and not be in the house, which actually worked out well for me. Uh, you know, we all cope in different ways, and I think we cope at different times in different ways. So as a child, I stayed away, and uh, and I hid. Why didn't anybody protect you? The problem with abuse is this. You know, secrets make you sick, but you're always in the secret, right? So what's happening to you, you might not know is happening to somebody else in your family. And in fact, we didn't. Uh, some of the violence, for sure, my sisters tried to protect me. Uh, we tried to protect each other, um, but it just is what it is. And all of this stuff is happening in a household. So you don't tell anybody outside of the household. This is, this is your home. And those secrets stay in your home. And I think that's true for many, many families. Like what happens in the house doesn't get aired out. I mean, that was very much the, the culture of the generation I grew up in. It's you don't tell people. And at 15, you leave home which is such a young age, what did you do to survive? I uh, actually, I, I left home, but my sister had left home as well, and she was 18. And so I was fortunate enough to move in with her for a year. I mean, it was um, <laughs> it was a horrible apartment that had more cockroaches than you could count. Uh, but we were safe. We were away. And uh, I was in school. I stayed in school. But then I took some time off, and I was working. Um just to help pay the rent. And back then rent was a lot cheaper than it is today. So, I mean, even that worked in my favor because it wasn't as expensive. Uh, and then after 16, then I moved out of her house, her the apartment and got my own apartment. When you moved in with your sister, did you start to talk to each other about and share the secrets that you kept inside? Nope. We sure didn't. <laughs> we hung on to our secrets for years and years and years. Uh, well into our 30s, maybe 40s, to be honest. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I didn't always know what I was good at. And on top of that, 
I had to learn as a woman what I was passionate about. My first job at 14 was a stint at a burger joint working the fryer. All day staring at fries, swimming in hot oil. We all worked with our heads down, we didn't talk much and that really wasn't my thing. My second job was doing kitchen prep and hosting at a pizza place and I loved it. I love being around different people and of course I love food. My guest today is Lori Nickel and you soon see how her life that begins with such pain manifests into a calling that has helped millions of people in our country. So Lori, you get married at age 18. Where did you meet your husband? Uh, well, I, we weren't actually married. He was just the father of my children. I met him at a bar. I was a bartender. I started bartending at uh, 16. I lied about my age, so I had to be 18 back then. I probably still do. And he was great, man. He uh, drank ginger ale and was just really sweet and nice and swept me off my feet. And we were we became a couple pretty soon after. How difficult is it for you to have any kind of relationship, especially with what you went through in terms of emotionally and physically? How hard was it to open your mind that I can trust this individual when you've been let down so many other times? Yeah, it's not easy, right? Like the, the truth is you build walls around yourself and nobody ever really gets in. I mean, I still have walls around myself. They're less. I'm a little more open, but, um, you know, you can't be vulnerable because you can't trust. And so it's very difficult to get vulnerable. But I will say, like, um, my first husband was... He got the walls down, right? Like he's a very charismatic man and I felt I could trust him. It took a while, but I, I, he was funny and I felt I could trust him. So the walls did come down, not entirely, but they certainly did come down. But, you know, with every new person you meet, the walls go right back up. Can I ask what the age difference was between you and, and your partner? Uh, seven years. So in fact, that's funny that you should ask that because he was the youngest guy I had dated. I was, when I was 16, I was dating a guy that was 26 when I was well, 17, 18, well, just before him, I was dating a guy that was 36. Like I just was all over the map with, uh, with men to be fair. I just, that kind of sexual abuse does something to your brain and, and many other things. So I was not appropriate with my relationships with men at all. I, they were all old, old men. And at age 19, I also read that you've, you're at an age where you're recovering or have recovered from cancer. How did that come about? So I got cancer when I was uh, 19. Yep. And I had to go get chemo for six months. And, uh, but I was still working through it. And it was a time, but I, and I didn't deal with it well. Like, I, full transparency. I was at women's college and, um, or I was at Mississauga Hospital and they put me on an ambulance right away and sent me to women's college. So they put me on a, a chemo drip like that day. So we were worried. We thought it was pretty serious, but I had really good friends. And also I was quite young. My funny story there is I was lying in the bed and, and there's this Ivy bag and it's got the, you know, the death bones on it. And then I, that's when I started to really freak out. And I looked at my good friends, Karen and David and said, I need a Caesar. And I meant a drink, not a salad. <laughs> It was like maybe 10 o'clock in the morning. And didn't they go find a bar? And they brought me a big, huge styrofoam cup of Caesar. And I had a drink. And I, that's how I honestly got through it. Every night before I went, every day before I went to chemo, I was pretty drunk. And then I would go in, get my chemo, pass out, and they'd kick me out the next day. And that's 
Not a great way of managing it, but that's how I managed it. And did you ever wonder why me, given that you're only 19? Yes, you had laughter, but your path so far is lots of speed bumps, if not sledgehammers. Did you ever wonder why me, or you just sort of figured this was life and I had to just carry on? Let's just yeah, roll with it. No, I, I'm never, I'm not a why me person. I never have been, and, and I wasn't then. It just, you just roll with it. I wasn't. I didn't also let it impact my life that much, right? Like aside of I had to go to the chemo, um, you know, I still worked. I still had my friends. We still hung out. Uh, you know, I did, I'm not someone who feels sorry for herself. You just kind of, you roll with it. You know, as you're with your charming man, three children by the time you're age 26, <laughs> three boys. Is that right? I, I have three wonderful sons, yes. And that, did that bring happiness to you? Did you start seeing that there was another role for you in life to be a mother and to, to maybe provide a home completely opposite of the home you had? Oh, absolutely. I loved being mother. These kids are, well, they're gorgeous. They're still gorgeous. Um, so yeah, there was absolutely wonderful to be a mother, but I mean, I was also very low income. We were, we, we didn't have any money. We were young. So I was also still working and raising three children and he was working as well, but I worked nights at, at a bar uh, as a waitress or a bartender and he worked days. And that also got very stressful because uh, he wasn't always great about showing up on time. And I was also going to school because I realized um, when I had Connor, my oldest son, I was a high school dropout. I said to myself, well, I can't get my son to graduate if I didn't. So I went back and got my GED and then I went to college and I took a course in computer science based on looking at the want ads and saying, oh, people seem to want this job. So <laughs> I was in school. I was working. I was parenting. I was doing a lot. So the bartender becomes a coder. So <laughs> exactly. one of the things I also read about was this severe anxiety disorder. Did that happen as you were having children or was that manifesting itself because your relationships were changing or? Yeah, that was after I'd had all three children. So 1992, 94, 96, he's my last child. And there was some issues in my home. Like my husband was an addict. He was not treating me incredibly well. Like let's put that mildly. And it was all scared. Like it was a time in my life where everything I did, I was walking on eggshells because it's interesting the way you spoke about your father. It's like you never knew which person was coming home because when you live with an addict, you just never know. We were dealing with that. So it was a really scary time. And, and you're just, my anxiety was so high, but back then, like anxiety wasn't a thing. Like as it is today, it wasn't so known. So I didn't know what was happening. I thought I was having heart attacks. It wasn't. They were just panic attacks. At age 28, when many people dream about their future, your husband leaves you abruptly, rent in arrears, and you and your boys are very close to being homeless. What did you do then to survive, given that already on your plate was many jobs, trying to get an education, trying to provide a safe haven for the boys? How did you cope? Uh, well, I got lucky. I was done school at that point, but it was the rent was $10,000 in arrears. And I had no idea. And honestly, if I could educate women that I wish I'd been educated is know the finances. Don't trust anybody with your finances. Just know, don't give your money away. Like I've made this mistake several times too, not managing my own finances. I'll never do that again. But 10,000 arrears, I was fortunate that my sister who lives in the uh, United States took my sons for, th for six weeks. And all I did for six weeks was work in a bar I opened that bar. I closed that bar. I slept on the floor of that bar. 
And I was lucky because it was a tiny little, oh my gosh, such a dive hole in the wall. Uh, but people knew what was happening. And so people were throwing money at me. I didn't make $10,000 in six weeks, but I was making enough that my landlord was say, was okay with me catching up a little later on. So, but if my sister hadn't taken the kids and if I hadn't had the kindness of the bar owner and, uh, and all the shifts I could take, I don't know where I'd be. Like I'm always in my mind, one paycheck away from being homeless, even though that's not the case anymore. That's the way I live my life. I'm always close to being homeless. And what did you do after those six weeks to feed your children? Did you ever rely on food banks or the charity of other people? Or did you find a way to make it happen within your own means? Well, I worked a lot. Uh, but no, we we were food insecure. Absolutely. Um, I'll tell you a story about a f- food bank. So I did once go to a food bank. They were so nice. I walked with this food bank. It wasn't actually in my neighborhood. I'd heard about it. The woman that met me at the door was lovely and you're supposed to show your ID and I didn't have it and I had my son with me and she's like, it's okay, you can give us later, you just get the food you need. They gave my son this huge bag of candy, it was so sweet. We picked up some, I remember spaghetti, I don't remember what else we got, but I know there was spaghetti and spaghetti sauce. And I went home and I made them dinner and that was the, only the second time in my life where I had a visceral reaction to something. I ate the spaghetti. I immediately ran upstairs and threw up and said, what has happened to my life? Like I just, and it was not because the food bank people were, it was just mentally, I'm like, what has happened to my life where I can't feed my own children? And at the same time, the school um, that my sons went to, well, two of them at that time, one was young, needed a child nutrition coordinator to feed all the kids in the school. And the principal asked me if I would do it. And I said, you betcha. So there was, I think that was my third job and it was mostly volunteer, uh, but it, it gave my kids access to food and it gave me access to food and it gave a whole lot of isolated, traumatized sea of women that were volunteering food and hope. This is Tony Chapman. When we return, Laurie Nickel has no choice but to carry on and what she does continues to be this incredible hero's journey. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC, and the father of two beautiful children. International Women's Day is a time to celebrate women's achievements. And a big shout out to RBC for Speak Up for Inclusion and all they're doing to promote a gender equal world. Across the country, RBC is speaking up by sponsoring events to encourage conversation, collaboration, and action. Fostering a gender equal world matters to you, to me, to my daughters, and to RBC. My advice to all the young women out there is to keep trying, keep experimenting. When you land somewhere that doesn't seem right, trust your instincts and move on. Find what you're good at and what you love. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Lori Nickel, and you soon see how her life that begins with such pain manifests into a calling that has helped millions of people in our country. Lori, we need to fill in the gaps between being the single mom, you're working at your kid's school, you've got three jobs, to today on your resume, Canada's most admired CEO, Transformational Leadership 2021, Top 25 Women of Influence 2021, Canada's Food Policy Advisory Council. Not even Stallone could script that kind of comeback. So how did you go from three jobs, working in a school just to get food and hope, to where you are today? Well, I was really good at what I did. So uh, honestly, I feel very passionate about 
women empowerment. I feel very passionate about food security. And I saw an opportunity and someone, a lot of people have taken second chances on me, right? Like I have been blessed by so many people. And so when I was running this child nutrition program, I was asked uh, by an organization that was the Toronto District School Board, Public Health, Catholic Board, and uh, an organization called Future, if I would work for them and show other moms how to build a child nutrition program, a community child nutrition program. And so I said, yes, please, I will take that job. And, and I was, I've got a big mouth, as you can tell. And so I was a big advocate at City Hall. I was a big advocate for women, a big advocate for children. And so it just parlayed itself into other jobs. Like I was offered other jobs to, you know, do it in Etobicoke and then do it in North York. And then can you do it for Toronto? Because the organization I was working at, like they were very innovative. I, you know, I, I got access to a lot of other learnings, which were incredible. But after that, then I was looking across Canada and an organization called Breakfast Clubs of Canada or Le Petit Déjeuner de Québec asked me if I would work for them and scale their organization in English Canada. Because I had many connections across the country, I said, absolutely. And honestly, it's just an, it was an easy job. You know, it's really easy to give out money. Who says no? So I was very, I was very lucky to get that role until I realized like I was spending so much time away from home. I was missing out so much on my children's life. Um, you know, A, I was working a lot of jobs and then I was working across the country and I wasn't home and I needed to come back. So I started working at this great little tiny organization in North York called Second Harvest. So before we get into Second Harvest, I just, I'm curious, who was the first person that believed in you? And how much did that mean to you? Oh, the first person who believed in me was the principal of Eatonville Junior School. Not only did she believe in me, like she helped me tremendously. She was, she offered me the position of running that child nutrition program, but she did more than that. She also made sure I got the education. She sent me to the right places so I could learn, like, and she paid for it, like the school paid for it. It meant the world to me because that was the impetus of my career. If I had not been doing that, I honest to God, don't know what I'd be doing now. I have to ask, when did you start believing in yourself that you realized that there was a destiny ahead of you and you had the ability to shape it, even though for most of your life, you'd been running in cement? Again, it was, it was Eatonville Junior School. It was the impetus of my whole life. So our job was to make healthy snack for 350 kids, 240 days a year. We had no money. And so I brought all these women together. There were ESL women. There were women that were like strongly abused. Like there was a sea of just beat down women that were physically, mentally, sexually, psychologically abused in some way. And what we realized together is that we can do things. I think what happens when we become parents often is we lose ourselves. We, we forget who we are. At least we did as women and we lost our confidence. And really, it was all about confidence, right? When you stop thinking you're any good at all, it's hard to do any good at all. And so just that sense of community and seeing the skills that we were getting and using the skills that we were getting and making those social connections changed a whole lot of us. Like there was one woman that was, um, well, she wasn't agoraphobic. Well, she was agoraphobic, actually. She just was, she never left her street, like her block, and uh, she hadn't had a job in years. She was on the system. And that was because she couldn't leave this area. And she did. She, she volunteered there for several years. And then she got a job at Ikea. And she was a head cashier at Ikea. And like, to some people, that doesn't sound like a big deal. 
for this woman, that was a huge deal. She was in her forties and she hadn't left her block. And so this is all based on our sense of self and we lose our sense of self. And when we get it back, it's amazing what we can do. I want to talk to you about second harvest and what the organization does. But first of all, talk to me about the need. On paper, Canada is the most admired country in the world. From afar, many people see Canadians and Canada as having streets lined with gold. But this isn't always the case. Even with our vast resources, our vast agricultural land, an educated population, there's millions of people dealing with food insecurity. Why is that possible and what is Second Harvest doing to try to eradicate at least some of these situations? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know that the world thinks Canada's paved in gold anymore. I mean, we certainly have done a lot of disservice to our Indigenous populations, to a lot of other populations. And yeah, right now we have, according to StatsCan, is 5.8 million Canadians are food insecure, but that doesn't account for people living on reserves or the territories. So the number is quite high. And why do we have poverty? I mean, it's, it's, I wish there was one answer. There's a million answers. Um, the monopolization of business is for sure one. We don't have a, a minimum wage. That's a living wage, which is a provincial issue. And we really need to change that. We don't necessarily have the opportunities. I think we, Canada and the States, I think we did a huge disservice by telling everybody they needed to go to university. And so we lost out on all the good paying trades and everybody went to school and now they're mired in debt. We also have food inflation. We have supply chain issues. We are also an enormous country. Just even getting food from A to B is challenging. And we're also very spoiled. We're used, we're, we're used to eating strawberries in the, in the winter. Uh, we have to look at shelves that are full of pristine food and that's a very Western North American thing. Like you don't even see that in Europe. There's crooked cucumbers and there's apples with marks on them and they sell them. So there is something a little extra privileged about Canada in the way we manage food. Like we don't actually value it anymore. I mean, that's food security and food security uh, you require access to safe, affordable, culturally appropriate, nutritious food. And we have a lot of food insecure people. And that's really based on income. People just need money in their pockets so that they can go and buy the food that they need. And that's not something that a lot of people have right now, or a lot less people have right now. So that isn't the case. Tell me what you're doing with Second Harvest, because this little company that you joined, you've scaled and you've scaled it dramatically. And I don't, I know you never use the word I. I've heard your, your speeches and you talk about we and your team. So I, I'm not implying it's just you. But what have you done to put a dent in something that every Canadian who doesn't have food insecurity should be ashamed of, so that our fellow citizens are going hungry every day. This is something that I actually did do. And it was, I looked at this great little organization and I, and because my background is, you know, food insecure, we're not a food security organization. We provide food. But in fact, what we are is an environmental organization. We're no waste. Once we could turn the lens that way, it really opened up a whole lot of opportunity for us. Because to be food secure, like I said, you really need money in your pocket. If you don't need a charity to give you food to be food secure, you need money in your pocket so you can go grocery shopping. That's it. How do we make sure that food stays out of landfill? How do we make sure that it gets to people instead of uh, compost? So that was the big shift for our business and innovation. Be open to innovation and research. What was shocking to me was when I started here that there was no research in Canada about the amount of food that's lost and wasted in our country. You know, that just seems like something we would have had and we didn't. So Second Harvest took the lead on that and said, okay, let's figure this piece out. 
And then because my background is low income and I never, I went to a food bank once and never again. And we all talk about food banks all the time. I'm like, yeah, but there's this whole invisible network of organizations that are feeding people, but they're, Purpose might not be to feed people, but that's what brings them through the door. So there are wraparound service. So it's maybe it's mental health and an addiction service, but it's the food that's bringing them in. And then you can support them with the social work that they need. Or it's a school where education is bringing them in, but you're getting a breakfast there too. And so the next piece of research we did was called Canada's Invisible Food Network, which shows in Canada... There are 61,000 charities and nonprofits using food to support Canadians. 7% of that number is food banks and the rest are something else. And that's really like just bringing that information forward. Like, okay, we have a huge food waste problem, all these places that could really benefit from the food. So how do we make the match? We did it through innovation without building bricks and mortar. Because what that research told us is there's 61,000 organizations that have bricks and mortar. So why would we do that? Why wouldn't we just connect them with the food? And that's the Food Rescue app. That is like the e-harmony of food. It really is just your local Loblaws or Sobeys or Starbucks or whatever it is, connecting their outlet to a local charity or nonprofit supporting people with food. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Just wanted to give you a taste of what it's like at Second Harvest in the morning. We have 12 trucks that are being loaded, some that are already gone, to pick up great healthy food, to make sure that we can keep it out of landfill and get it to the places that need it most. Have a great day. My guest today is Lori Nickel, a woman, a mother, who did what she could to keep a roof over her children's head and food on her table. And she found the will to change her life, her world, to change our world for the better. How much of your work is getting government to act upon these insights in this research versus just turn it into rhetoric? Well, I, I do sit on Canada's Food Policy Advisory Council, which I've been appointed by the federal government. And so there is movement on it. Like I, and I sit on the food waste file. Uh, so I am pushing very hard for very specific and clear policy changes. In 2015, Canada made a commitment to the UN that we would have food loss and waste by 2030. It's 2023 and we're not even measuring it. So how on earth like, are we going to half what we haven't measured? I am pushing forward for mandatory measurement. Industry must measure, they must monitor, set targets and goals, and we should support industry. Like we're built of small and medium sized businesses for the most part. So let's support them so that they can meet those targets. And if they can't, if they refuse to do it, eh, then we have to, you know, figure out some other ways to ensure that they do it. And what did you do to manage and lead your business through the pandemic? Because I have to imagine, you know, for large organizations with vast resources, it was a challenge. But for an organization like yours, what did you do to make sure that you continue to provide that important link between those that have food to give away and not put in landfills and the organizations that need it. Well, a couple of things that happened right before the pandemic. One is we purchased a building because we were working out of this tiny little building in North York. Now I'm sitting in this gorgeous facility with a huge cooler freezer in Etobicoke. We were in our strategic plan. We had a three-year rollout to go national. So we'd already gone to, across Ontario and we'd gone to BC so we, our plan was always to go national and then COVID hit and we're like, Oh my goodness, we're going to have to go national in three 
days instead of three years. So we got with our friends that um, we have a product team here in Second Harvest that work on our app, but we also had an organization called Redbit build our app. And we said, okay, you've got to make this work because not only are we going to make sure that people have food, we have to make sure that they can allocate, we can allocate funding on it. We received a whole lot of money from the federal government, $10 million from the Sprott Foundation. So we could leverage that. We bought grocery gift cards at a deep discount so we could even leverage their money so it went even further. We worked with Northwest Company in the North and blah, blahs in the South. And we just scrambled. We were flying by the seat of our pants for three years, but what we all are is passionate. We're all hard workers. And, you know, it was COVID, so we never actually knew when it was going to end. We were kind of thinking, oh, it'll be over next week. It'll be over next week. Nobody could have foreseen this was going to go on as long as it did. I think one of the greatest things that came out of it, too, was we created something called the uh, Food Rescue Canadian Alliance, which was a group that included industry, major charities, the federal government, and Indigenous communities. And we got together right at the beginning, like it was April. We pulled this group together and said, okay, how are we going to manage all the surplus that's going to happen? Because with restaurants closing, there's huge amounts of surplus in, in interesting categories like seafood and eggs and all the things you typically eat in restaurant. And how are we going to manage the huge dips in food security? Because people were hoarding food. People that were food secure were suddenly feeling like food insecure, even if they had money because people were hoarding food. And I remember walking into grocery stores and the shelves were empty. But what resulted from that is something called the Surplus Food Rescue Program, where we were allowed to purchase surplus food and transform it. Like, so the salmon, we could transform into cans of salmon. Then we could send them as far north as possible and distribute it across the country. So there was some, there was a whole lot of collaboration, a whole lot of partnership, there was a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of amazing things. And how about Canadians in general coming through the pandemic? Do you feel we're more charitable? Do you think we're more open-minded to helping each other than we were before? Or is it the opposite? I think, honestly, I think one thing that COVID showed us was the disparity between rich and poor that we've never seen before. That's always kind of been around, but now it's really loud. And I actually think... Canadians are very generous. I know they are. I run a charity. Canadians are very, very generous. But I also know that they're very, very strapped right now. So they're generous with their time. They're generous with their money. But you can only be so generous when you can't afford to buy your own groceries. And I'm not. I'm just talking about everyday people like who have jobs. Yeah, I mean, I read this powerful statement where they said, all of a sudden, food has become a discretionary item when you need to put fuel in your tank, heat your house. And pay for your mortgage. Lori, I want to end this conversation talking about you. For that girl that grew up in that horrific household, all the awards that you've won, the great work that you're doing with Second Harvest, what are you most proud of? Well, I'm a mom. I am most proud of my boys. Every day, that's always going to be my answer. I love those kids so much. Uh, they did not have it easy either. And, you know, uh, <laughs> they just grew up to be really wonderful men. And what do they think of you, the mom that might not have been there all the time because she had three jobs, to the mom now that's getting Order of Ontario? And- I don't know. I think they're kind of over me, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> those boys love their mom, but those accolades don't mean anything to them because I'm their mom. They don't care. <laughs> and what's next for Second Harvest and what is next for Lori Nickel? Who knows, Tony? Honestly, if I couldn't plan my life and I didn't, this is just the way I roll. So second harvest, I will say, you know, we're going to, we have a strategic plan and our goal is to be net zero. And our goal is to continue to 
capture as much surplus food and redirect it to charities as possible. Uh, but we're always going to continue to research and advocate and train and educate and, and really just push that out. But honestly, as a, a charity CEO, any charity CEO, we don't want these jobs, right? Like we want to go out of business. I'll have succeeded when second harvest doesn't exist anymore. I mean, there's, and I'm not worried about employment. I'm, I'll get another job. It's fine. And my staff, they're awesome. They'll get other jobs. But the goal of charity, charity shouldn't exist. Charity exists where policy does, does not. So if we can fix this, then we should be out of business in like 10 years. Well, I hope one day you lead this country or lead a part of this country. Cause I think that you're the pain, the passion, the purpose, the pursuit is something that I think Canadian voters would line up for because it's, uh, at times it's a void missing in this country. I always end with three things, my three takeaways, Laurie. And the first one is this insight. If you don't know you're good, how can you possibly do good? What you found in a company of women, many of you who are abused, lacking self-esteem and confidence, that when you regain confidence, when you started supporting each other, the magic that happened. And I, I think that head cashier in Ikea is a hero. I hope it makes people open their eyes when they look around the world and try to judge people based on their place in society. They need to understand the journey that led them to that place. The second thing is you're, you remind me of a lot of comedians who grew up with such pain and masked it with laughter and jokes. And, you know, you said it because you're the youngest seeking attention, but the Jim Carrey's of the world and Rosanna Bars and so many others have kind of found a way to at least take some of the anxiety and stress off through comedy. So now when I hear you laugh and giggle, which is so enchanting and contagious, and part of me wonders if that's just the comedian from day one that, that hid a lot of the pain. And the final thing is never be afraid to change the perspective. You could have walked into Second Harvest and said, it's like any other char charity, it's another cog in the wheel. But you did research, you looked at the unmet needs in the marketplace, you looked at where the opportunities were, and you changed the status quo and you changed the perspective. And you've become lifeblood for so many organizations in terms of connecting food that should go to people's mouths versus landfill. So for all of that and more, I am so happy to have this Order of Ontario most admired CEO, comedian extraordinary Laurie Nickel on my show. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Joining me now on the show is Andrea Barrick. She's a Senior Vice President of Corporate Citizenship and ESG at RBC. Andrea, welcome. Thank you, Tony. So pleased to be here. Not everybody understands an acronym like ESG. What does it stand for and why do you feel it matters so much? Oh, yeah. So ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance Matters. And they're increasingly being looked at by companies to try to demonstrate how our companies have influence on both society and the environment. And at the same time, how are social, environmental and governance issues affecting a company's business? What are the kinds of things that they need to be looking at to make sure that uh, they can continue into the future? And one of the things that I was really impressed about when I was doing a little bit of research on you is that when you were choosing a job, you came out and said that you're looking for your next assignment or your next role is one that aligns with your personal mission to work with others to create, amplify and execute ideas that help organizations build a better world. I thought that was courageous. I thought that had conviction. But what I'm most curious about is where did your personal mission come from? It wasn't just a professional preoccupation. You know, it was also quite personal. I'd say it started over three decades ago, actually. You know, I was a teen mom in small town Ontario. 
and dealing with stigma and judgment about that and struggling with rent and trying to get back on track. And, you know, things were hard, but I had the ability to access like social assistance to pay bills. I was able to get grants to go to university and childcare so that I could attend classes and I could see a path forward. I worry today that too many people can't see that path forward. You know, they feel the system is working against them, not for them. They don't feel confident about their future, their trust in institutions and governments waning. But I guess this is the belief that I've always had that we can turn that around. You know, Canada is rich in resources, innovation, diversity, community spirit. We have such strong assets on which to build. We have engaged citizens who care about making a difference. And we have purpose-led companies who can use their influence and their resources to push the status quo. And so that's actually why I crafted that personal mission statement. It's like reflecting on my own purpose. It's a consolidation of my work to date. It's a North Star for the future. Like it's really answering the question, like what ties my diverse experiences together in a way that makes sense and helps guide those future choices. Lori's show obviously resonates with you because she was a single mom. Her husband left abruptly. She had to feed her family. She had to rely on food banks. She had to rely on a country as rich as Canada that can provide support. What do we need to do for the future generations so there's less stories like yours and Lori's in terms of insecurity and uncertainty and much more about possibility and positivity? It's really an economic issue. It's exacerbated by inflation, stagnant or unstable incomes, the cost of housing. And food then too often becomes a discretionary expense. Increasing urbanization amplifies that issue because cities are becoming increasingly unaffordable. We definitely need an economic response, but we also need to look hard at the social safety net we say we cherish as Canadians and ask, does that net have holes? You know, my sister works at a food bank in Cambridge and you know, she says since COVID, regular use of her uh, organization has increased substantially and continues to grow. And they're now servicing more and more middle-class folks. Many kids are relying on school nutrition programs, but when kids aren't in school, that's missing. Too many people are living at the margins, like one paycheck away from being in that food bank lineup or being homeless, quite frankly. So government has the biggest levers on some of the responses for sure. But we also know that the charitable sector is a big part of the solution. And they're dealing both with the immediate and urgent needs in communities on the ground, but they're also creating those longer term solutions for food security, like community gardens and kitchens. They're doing public policy advocacy. They're working with the private sector to reduce food waste so that food is used to feed hungry people, not thrown away. You know, coming from the private sector, I've been really impressed by the food and grocery industry for tackling this issue as well and trying to find creative solutions. It's like most pressing issues we're facing today. It's really going to take a collective effort to solve from the government, from the charitable sector and from private enterprise. Andrea, I can understand why you've been given the role that absolutely connects to your personal mission, Senior Vice President of Corporate Citizenship and ESG at RBC. And I hope you come back and join me on Chatter That Matters. I will do that anytime. Thanks for the conversation. 
Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.